This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from. This should be an interesting one today. Uh, we've got a great show live with us today are Ed Light and Paul Haas. Uh, I'm calling them the Building Dynamics Duo. They're with Building Dynamics LLC outside of D.C. in the Maryland area and looking forward to a great show talking about moisture, mold, and practical answers to complex questions. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsor. Wait, I got a new sponsor I have to announce also, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at SiriScience.org. That's C-I-R-I Science.org. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or, if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to John Lepotair, Indoor Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida, for being first to identify actinomycetes as the heterogeneous group of gram-positive, generally anaerobic bacteria noted for a filamentous and branching growth pattern that results in most forms in an extensive colony or mycelium. The IQ radio trivia question for today, Friday, April 26, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Identify the term that is used to describe a property of a thermodynamic, a thermodynamic system that is equal to the system's internal energy plus the product of its pressure and volume. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. We've got the Building Dynamics Duo today. Paul Haas is an M- has an MS in Industrial Hygiene from the University of Southern Cal and a BA in environmental science, also from from the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's authored many peer-reviewed scientific publications and is a member of an elite group of surfers who enjoy bluegrass music. You'll understand that better in a moment. Uh, He's also working now with Ed Light at Building Dynamics, LLC. Ed is the president of Building Dynamics. He's an AIHA fellow and the author of the hit song, There's a Fungus Among Us. Ed has investigated the entire spectrum of IAQ problems, ranging from buildings in the coldest climates on Earth, the South Pole Station, to the ultimate hot air building, the White House. Ed, I think you've got your own intro music. Let's hear it. (laughs) 
it gets too hot for comfort And you can't eat ice cream cones Ain't no sin Take off your skin and dance around in your bones Wear your bathing suit to the office Soak your feet while on the floor It ain't no sin Take off your skin and dance around in your bones the polar bears are mad up in Greenland. They got no room to dance. Their homes are shrinking and it's got me thinking that they might as well live in France. Like those bamboo babies on the tropic island zone. Ain't no sin to take off your skin and dance around in your bones. Oh, thank you, Ed. Uh, you're the only one we've ever had play their own intro music. I love it. And uh, by the way, Ed, you have to watch, look at today's show announcement. Make sure you look at the quote of the week. Um, it's especially for you. All right, let's get Paul Haas on here. Paul, I know you've got to run. So I want to I want to start with you today and um, get a little little bit. I know you've been a long time listener to the show. It's great to finally have you on the show. Thanks, Joe. Uh, we're talking about moisture conditions and and you know what threshold moisture condition is, is necessary to initiate humidity related mold growth. So I think we're going to start with humidity related mold growth because I know you guys have been looking at that in particular in some school buildings. That's right, Joe. You know, the real, the real question often is asked is, are sustained temperatures and relative humidity, I live in the hot south, are they the responsibility for, for mold growth? And you'll hear a lot of good scientific literature, which you have to wade through, to state that, especially in the restoration industry, that, that relative humidity in excess of, let's say, 65% must be controlled so as to avoid humidity-related mold growth. That might be a good baseline. However, typically, and, and the, the scientific and the engineering bodies that uh, have researched this and we get our guidance from often say that sustained relative humidity in excess of 80% relative humidity over a prolonged period would be that such that it would be uh, capable of sustaining mold growth. The problem is it is site dependent. And we've dealt with a few studies and we'll talk a little bit. It'll cover more than, than myself, but we'll talk about it. But the fact is molds can grow at all humidities and do from the Antarctic all the way to the White House and those need to be considered, particularly in the light when people are alleging or calling you out, us out, we CIHs. Um, and I just want to say one thing about CIHs quickly. We do not clean teeth in the workplace. <laughs> but, the, but the point I want to nail down is, because Ed's going to take you on a journey. Ed, hold on. You get, to, you, get, you get your turn for 45 minutes. I've got to go to an airport. Um, okay. It, when Ed talks, he's going to talk about thresholds that we've seen. So empirical data is always better than theoretical data. Thanks, Joe. All Back right. to you. 
Paul, thank you. And, and Ed, let me have you jump in here. Oh, I was just going to uh, say that uh, CIHs don't do teeth, and most of them don't know much about buildings, and I'll shut up. <laughs> I think that's a good point. Um, now, you, you mentioned relative humidity uh, several times there, Paul, and I want to know, uh, and this kind of made, I didn't prepare you for this, but I just <clears throat> your thoughts on, rather than using relative humidity, what about uh, using dew point like they recommend in the EPA moisture control guide? Has, have you found that to be helpful when you're dealing with facilities people, or are you better off just sticking with talking about relative humidity? Well, you've said a mouthful there, and, and I would put it this way. Um, however you communicate to your client, um, make sure they understand that the, the, the amount of available moisture in the air is not the same as the moisture that's on the surface. So dew point plays into that. And I like to say, I used to teach a class in Georgia, and they love to talk about, you know, how hot it is in Georgia. And I tell people that it, when you use the term psychometrics, it is not to cause people to go to a psychiatrist. It's actually to understand the relationships between temperature, moisture, and then, rel, you know, things like relative humidity. So it's critical that uh, dew, and dew point is an excellent, uh, an excellent uh, parlay particularly when you're talking about mechan and I know we're going to ask me quickly about mechanically conditioned spaces either cool dehumidified or heated that in fact is uh, the term that should be discussed is the dew point is the dew point okay so the way I've kind of described it in the past and I wonder if you agree you have moisture content in building materials uh, oftentimes expressed as a percent moisture content that would be accurate with wood, not so much with other things. But then you've also got the the humidity conditions, the, the dew point conditions, the relative humidity conditions in the building. And it seems to me like you, you sometimes reach a tipping point where um, a combination of these issues leads to the mold growth. Has that been your experience? It, it has. In, in the building sciences, and we're, we're really lucky to have someone who's allowed us to use that term. I don't think that most people understand that the complications that rest in buildings, particularly, again, when you talk about available moisture, it's okay to talk about drying after a flood, but to maintain a building in such a condition that it is dry and it will not support mold growth is far different. And it is so important to get the the nature of the problem, especially when it gets to, you know, to conditions. And I got to tell you, you hit the nail on the head. Too many people walk out with an infrared camera or a moisture meter and say, this area is wet without a lot of basis for that discussion. So how, I wanted to go to the mechanical system, but you just led me to another quick question then. Um, what would be the better way to, uh, or, or what else should they be doing to present that information that the building is wet rather than just doing a thermal image or just a moisture meter? What other things should we be doing? A, a combination of things come into play. One is, is, is the area in question or the, the location in question um, uh, 
typical or normal? Is it, you know, what are the operating conditions? What's the, if for example, in a residence or commercial building, what is the thermostat in the area set to? What is, in fact, a couple of days of data logging, a good inexpensive data logger will give you just a tremendous amount of data, more data for most people. But then you can begin to show, you know, periods where the temperature and relative humidity change by daytime, nighttime uh, cycles. You can also show how long the unit runs by showing, say, a plateau in the uh, dry bulb temperature. So it gets a little bit thick when it comes down to the building science part, but for the layperson part, get them to understand there's a relationship. Temperature goes up, relative humidity goes down. However, the amount of available moisture that's in the air could in fact remain relatively constant, or it might change depending on the conditions that, that rest there. So I hope I answered that question. That's a very complicated question. I think we'll be continuing to talk about that as the day goes on here, but let's, let's go to the, I think, tough question for building owners, and that is, um, how does the operation of the HVAC system contribute to humidity-related moisture and mold growth? Well, that one's simple. You made, you made my life very comfortable there. I hate asking questions after questions. That's another trait of CIHs. The point is, the, condition, the, the air conditioning system, if properly designed, was to design optimal comfort and a range of temperature and relative humidity, which describe comfort. And those conditions are generally also followed by, unless there are other prevailing factors, followed by a, a typical range of, of, do, you know, of, your, of your relative humidity or your dew points that are ascribed for that climate. So if a properly designed system is operating, then we, uh, we typically will say those conditions are, with, are within, I'm going to put a term out, they got to be careful, but they're within that ASHRAE winter-summer zone. And, and I, just to clarify that, that tends to be an area of temperature and relative humidity rather than just a single point. And that's, but that's more based on comfort, isn't it? And, and how does Absolutely. So, so what do we need to do to change that or to change thinking so that people are thinking more about moisture as opposed to just comfort? I'm, I'm, I don't know if that was a good question or not, but what do you... Uh, Ed, you can jump in on this one, but I, I would say that I learned this from a, a senior mechanical engineer when I was trying to describe excess ventilation in schools. And he said to me, right straight up in, in, in a series of voices, he could say, air don't care. Hmm. Interesting. Ed? So uh, we've done some interesting scientific experiments. We don't get research grants. We just work in our building. But we had an opportunity to compare conditions uh, in two summers, uh, uh, one when, and, and with the schools vacant and mold, humidity mold grew all over the place in one summer and not in another summer. And what we found was that you can be real uncomfortable, but it takes an awful 
lot of uh, uh, high humidity for several days uh, to actually start that mold growing. So actually uh, controlling to comfort uh, should not uh, get uh, enough humidity to grow mold. However, a lot of HVAC systems and air conditioning is just uh, pretty much for controlling the temperature. And in those, uh, with that system, if you uh, get really sustained humid weather outside, and that might not even be so hot, it's just a bunch of rainy days, then that humidity, even though the temperature is controlled inside, the humidity can jump way up in the building. You can even get humidity mold in an occupied building if that humidity has been way up there. And you better stop me because I'll keep going. Well, and I know Paul's got to run here, so I want to get back. In, and I'd like to get back to that topic, Ed, when we have just you here. But, uh, Paul, before you've got to run, so we're talking about relative humidity and equipment and HVAC systems. So what level of humidity control is really needed? I mean, based on your experience, is it do we have to keep below – um, you know, 70% all the time? Can it go above 70% a couple hours here and there? Where, where, do you, where do you stand on that? Well, here's where the state of the practitioner is right now, Joe. Uh, in this case, one must understand that surface moisture is different than, than air uh, temperature and air moisture. So if you, if you can assist us by stating that we're not trying to make this complicated, but the amount of, of equilibrium relative humidity at the surface, depending on the materials in the space, and I hate to say it depends, but that, that's an empirical measurement. That's a measurement we can make that's actually made with a moisture meter. Now, you mentioned wood. Wood, uh, uh, southern softwood, has a moisture content of its kiln drying of about 17 to 19%. That's the amount of water that's in the wood. That could be repeated many times in many locations, depending on the, the, you know, the status. That is also equivalent, if you could, that wood moisture equivalent to the amount of moisture that's leaving. And again, this is not, you know, it's not meant for graduate study, but that's the amount of moisture that you're trying to either add to or dry to or that will accept the amount of moisture. That's known as, as the reciprocal or the, if you divide uh, equilibrium relative humidity by one, you're going to get active water. That number in percentage is how wet that material is. No doubt about it. It's how, and that's what we should be looking for. Now you want to control. You are all dry, you're all pros in the drying business, right? Many are. Yeah, and if and in the drying business, we want to try to remove as many grains of moisture so as to get the whole system to dry to achieve a wood moisture equivalency. Let's say of between you know a little bit more than seventeen to nineteen because you don't want to over dry, but you want to get that by removing the moisture in the air and try to drive that moisture out and get it to equilibrium with the environment that's in. Let's say 20, 20%, 22. So we can actually watch that occur over time. That's an example that I was hoping I could convey. Well, I'm just wondering, you know, 
I, I would imagine a lot of restoration people, drying people, um, even the, the IEQ consultants out there, they're, they're probably thinking to themselves right now, geez, 17 to 20%. I, I, I'm not comfortable leaving building materials at 17% moisture content. Can you comment on that? Well, that's, that's not related to every bit of material that's in a building. So that's uh, episode two because that is a particular material, southern yellow pine, for example. Okay. So okay. when we say that, uh, it's important not to overdry, but it's also important to, A, get rid of the source of water that caused the excess moisture to occur, and then attack it systematically. Things may have to dry over time. They may not dry. And remember, a lot of our material now is sustainable, and if it's sustainable, anyone that's seen oriented strand board or other materials, even plywood, if looked at under a, a scanning electron microscope, it's going to look like a bunch of straws all stacked together that actually have pathways for water to be retained very aggressively for a long time. Drywall is another thing. And I'd love to come back or have some pros from the U.S. Gypsum Association without using that trademark, or someone from the drywall industry come back and talk about how dry they want drywall to be. That's a, that, that's beyond this show, but that is a, a really important discussion to have along with all the newer stuff. Well, I agree. And I think it's something to take you up on and, and, and do down the road. But before you go, um, there was an important question I thought here. How can I got to put in my plugs? All right. All right, go ahead. Shoot. How can unoccupied schools be air-conditioned to prevent humidity-related mold growth but yet be consistent with energy conservation? We don't, run a, we don't want to run a mechanical system all summer if there's nobody in the building. So how do you guys at Building Dynamics, uh, what do you recommend to building owners? In this case, we'll talk about school districts because they have an mm-hmm. unusual situation. Um, do you tell them they've got to run their mechanical system all summer, or is there some other way they can prevent this humidity-related mold growth? Let me, let me put it this way. Across this nation, if we could put together just a very simple description, we put together some papers, but they need to be distilled down to, let's say, you know, an eighth-grade education. But we're on a journey here, and the journey says – from an energy standpoint, not necessarily from a, you know, from a mold standpoint, that we can clearly construct a plan where we run systems, depending on the, it's very complex what you're asking, but that will have either a chilled water system or a, a, D, a DX system, a, a Freon system, that will run at the appropriate times after the appropriate people, you know, flood mop uh, floors, for example, wax floors, so that we can put together a system that, again, we've come up with a term, we haven't coined it, we haven't trademarked it yet, called time of wetness, but that gives a person a simple rubric that they can follow, a scheme of devices, if it would be. And uh, can I put in my plugs real quick? Sure. Let me just... All right. Go ahead. Uh, well, you mentioned this time of wetness. I think that's a good concept. Um. And you mentioned uh, different buildings may have different, you know, needs with respect to moisture control and humidity. So it sounds to me like it, it kind of depends. And it's a, it's a site-by-site, building-by-building 
call. Is that accurate to say? That That is accurate. But there is a sweet spot there. Okay. And I think we'll have Ed talk about the sweet spot when he gets uh, – when we get him on here um, and after you've got to go. Paul, before you go, I know you wanted to say a few things. I just want to give a shout-out to my, my lovely family, Peggy, and my four children, uh, Kenny, uh, Joanne, PJ and Ahana. Also want to uh, thank the good Lord for my grandchildren who I will see tomorrow morning. Um, I'm, I'm actually kind of poised to uh, push uh, the, the ball down the road a little bit on building science. And I'm, I want to, if you would, I'm putting out a shameless plug for uh, both BDL and a company called Sildry. I threw Cliff at that this week. I think they'll be a lot of fun. Joel Glickman and Michael Aritan are the principals of that firm. They will be fascinating to talk to. And That's building so structure, Sildry, yeah, Sildry.com. I ordered one of their uh, products. They'll give you a free example. They have a – it looks like it's plastic, essentially. Um, and it's it's a built – it's a window pin flashing. The whole thing is all kind of put together. It looks very interesting. Yep, and, and they're a Pennsylvania company, so they're American-made, and you, you'll find them to be quite uh, a lot of fun. They, you, you take a field trip and, and invite me with you. And All then right. last but last, not least, I, I think Cliff and my uh, erstwhile uh, colleague, uh, Dr. C, Felicia C. and C. Arulo, I think they should get together and explain what kind of nefarious plans they have in place for this experiment they're doing on cleaning effect. I'm holding them out as uh, possible co-conspirators. There you go. I'd love it. Um, Cliff, will you be talking about that at the Healthy Building Summit this year? Um, maybe. We could. Paul and Ed join us up there this year. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. Well, Paul, thanks again. Gentlemen, for thank you. Really appreciate it. I know you've got to run, and I look forward to talking again in the future. See you again soon, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks, Paul. Ed, let's take it over to you, Ed. Um, first, anything you'd like to add to what we just talked about with Paul? I'm still feeling a little like um, I need a little more concrete steps to take and, and, and something to, for, for Cliff to put in the blog. Like, what's the, what are the Cliff notes from what we just talked about? Okay, so you asked two important practical questions. The uh, uh, how can HVAC systems be run in occupied schools over the summer so you don't get mold? And we have worked with schools in a number of situations. Uh, usually we start out, got to remediate the mold, and typically the engineering isn't thought out as far as prevention, which is the most important thing. So uh, what we have recommended is uh, where there is sufficient humidity to potentially grow mold in the building over the summer is to try out a couple hours of system operation to pull humidity out and do that uh, the peak of the day, which in the building is a little bit behind the outside, so say uh, late afternoon, and uh, those buildings will not be comfortable on hot days, but uh, 
we uh, predict that there will not be enough moisture in the air to grow humidity. And I'm very excited because I think this summer we have finally have one of our school systems uh, is going to try this out. We'll, uh, I guess they're about to decide. And uh, huge amounts of utility money and wasted energy uh, go into uh, running HVAC air conditioning continuously or half days over the summer. And the problem with vacant schools is usually way overreaction or way underreaction, which is kind of the case with most of your IAQ problems. Uh, when it's not science-based, you way overreact or you way underreact. So a lot of schools have no air conditioning in the summer, or a lot that have had mold problems just go crazy with the air conditioning, have huge bills. And uh, being good ASHRAE members, we try to strike a balance here. And in, in fact, uh, our presentation and our papers through ASHRAE Journal have found that this is actually is an IEQ problem that doesn't cost you more money to, uh, to deal with, but actually you can save a lot of money by not over-air conditioning and in fact, over air conditioning cools the air so much and increases the relative humidity that you're growing more mold and you're, uh, you're actually un uncomfortable even in occupied buildings when you overcool. Overcooling is one of the big factors in growing humidity mold. Ed, let me ask you this. So I want to get some concrete recommendations now for let's say i've got a school in fact i'll be talking to some school people in a couple of weeks down in greenville south carolina so you're feeling like if if we looked at their uh their dew point their relative humidity over a period of time and got to understand when it gets highest um during the summer and like you say it's going to lag a little behind the outdoors so maybe late afternoon your thought is that it we may be able to just run that mechanical system for a couple of hours a day to help lower it enough to kind of break that cycle. Um, I think I could sum that up correctly. If not, let me know. The second part of it is, would we not be just as well off to use maybe some dehumidifiers in that situation as opposed to using the air conditioning and bring the humidity levels or the dew point temperature down enough in the building, you know, kind of instead of the whole mechanical system being on, maybe just use some dehumidifiers. Have you done that as well? Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, seen many cases, uh, again, verging on overkill, overreaction, where because they've got the humidity mold, they'll bring in dozens, even you've seen hundreds of dehumidifiers. And so you have optional ways of controlling the humidity. And uh, uh, it's, it's best to use your HVAC. And uh, uh, one of the factors we usually see where the, when the humidity has gotten bad enough to grow mold is there's all kinds of stuff in disrepair and out of whack on the systems. Mm -hmm. so, uh, uh, so one of the first steps we would do is 
get maintenance troubleshoot and fix your system. And then we have our controls guy in and see uh, if the controls are working right. And then sometimes we change the sequences because those are going against your moisture control. And to make things a lot simpler for schools, what we have suggested is try a few hours of air conditioning in uh, late afternoon and, uh, and monitor from there. And you have plenty of warning in advance before mold will actually start growing. I mean, the, the rooms will feel damp, and then you'll start getting a slight musty smell. And the simplest thing I've been advocating is just have the you got an unoccupied school. Make the custodians check every room every day. And it's amazing how many schools the doors are shut all summer and then August, the day before teachers are coming, they oh my God, our clean room is a tropical rainforest. Double so double. and it's even better and it's like Paul says, real cheap stick uh Temperature, humidity, data logger in some representative rooms or even a critical worst case room and download it once in a while and uh, uh, just see, track your humidity and your dew point, point and uh, it will tell you if you're at risk, if humidity is uh, going for more than a day or so, up over 80%. Uh, you know, that's a key warning indicator. And uh, actually, with all the research and publication uh, on these subjects, there's uh, very little practical applied research on this and no practical guidance for our school systems or other buildings that deal with humidity mold and how to run vacant or unoccupied periods in the building. And I'm, I'm on the ASHRAE Moisture Committee with uh, Lou Harriman, and uh, those are real important topics to us, and we have a lot of frustration that uh, mechanical engineers uh, really aren't tuned in to controlling moisture. And when it gets over to the AIHA that I'm active in, it's even worse as far as industrial hygienists truly understanding and appreciating uh, um, moisture and humidity control in a building. You know, you see mold, you clean it up, and uh, very often wait till it grows back, and the consultants and labs get plenty of business because they're not controlling the source. And if you understand the engineering and work with the facilities people, there are, there are very practical, simple answers. Uh, and now we're talking about the humidity mold question, which actually will save a lot of buildings and owners money to prevent the mold. Ed, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. When we get back, I want to go back to the, uh, some of the other questions that we missed here. We had to change the order a little bit since Paul had to leave. And uh, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about water activity and uh, moisture content and drying of buildings as well because we've got a large group of listeners that are uh, restoration contractors and they're getting some mixed signals. So we'll be back in ninety seconds with the second half of our show. We've got Ed Light of Building Dynamics. 
IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at IAQA.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, networks with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. I also want to thank our newest sponsor, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at SiriScience.org. Hey, before I go over to Cliff, Cliff, I want you to uh, get a question in here. Uh, but before I do, Ed, um, I got a text that I think is really important, and I think it adds to the conversation that we had just a moment ago. Um, good guidance in the um, – you know, in the ASHRAE document, but in schools, he's saying you need to shut off the outdoor air vents and turn off all the exhaust in the summer. That way you're not sucking in humid outdoor air and have less grains of moisture to remove. What do you think of that? Oh, uh, that's absolutely in our recommendations and guidance. And I'm giving you the comic book version here. So uh, uh, negative air in buildings, and I've seen very rarely schools that are positively pressurized. Negative air, sucking in humidity in the middle of the summer is a huge factor. And so in buildings we're troubleshooting or advising on, we shut off all the exhaust we can, except maybe a few toilets. And, and, uh, uh, and then as far as uh, outside air, we don't need ventilation when there's no occupants. And it depends on the system whether that's practical. And in some cases, even with the unit ventilators, uh, we've just closed off the outside air for the summer. And, of course, that, that stops your huge source of moisture, which is the humidity from outside. So you've you got to look at each system and it's uh exact things you do are going to differ by climate zone and the bottom line for this and the drying restoration questions is you don't want to get mold and uh practical answers to that are out there the research is confusing and inconclusive uh on these questions and again without research grants and just going out and looking at tons of buildings we've 
we've come up with some ideas and non-statistically uh, non-statistical data showing that there are solutions to these and uh, and I'm, I might mention here that uh, in regards to preventing mold uh, the restoration industry and the good practitioners you know for example that beat and cliff here they understand drying and moisture and the tools to do it and the bottom line is they'll get a building dry and the mold's gone and you're not getting it back that's the bottom line scientifically uh and uh standards wise this stuff is all gray area and inconclusive but bottom line is uh don't grow mold and Cliff and Pete know how to do that. <laughs> Bad, clean, good. Cliff, go for it. Yeah, um, Ed. My question is, I don't remember where I saw this. Pete may has a better memory than I, but I was taught at a class that you can measure the water activity of a surface by taking a thermo uh, hygrometer uh, temperature hygrometer, placing it on the surface, covering it with plastic and duct tape, allowing it to, uh, e you know, e e uh, equalize. And it typically does this in, you know, like a minute or two. And then what you would do is you would take this reading and move the decimal point over two places to the left, and that would give you the water activity of the this head space. And if that's true... I don't understand why all these people are trying to, to, to determine the same thing in very difficult and expensive and impractical ways. Uh, my understanding is, well, f well, first of all, uh, I believe that would give you a good semi-quantitative estimate of water activity. And what you do with that water activity measurement and how much you really need that to assess a building and to dry a building uh, is, is debatable. But uh, as far as that measurement, I, uh, I haven't played with that so much. What I, what I did play with is the prototype meter uh, by the, I guess it was the Decadence Company. And, and uh, that was a more sophisticated, a little more quantitative, and uh, we had recommendations to them to improve it. And now, no longer, uh, never got to, got to production. Right. And uh, so, instrumentation could be developed. I'm not sure one's out there to measure water activity quantitatively, and that seat of the pants method you're talking about and Paul has fooled with this stuff more than me but I believe that would give you a real good estimate uh, for understanding water activity and uh, I, uh, so uh, yeah, well, thanks I, I think you know again I, I think it's practical I think it also helps in training people to get them to understand it and you know, with with your consulting, you know, it might not be a bad thing to take a piece of drywall and, and wet it and have put it in a plastic bag, and that that way you can explain to you know people in schools what you're trying to prevent and trying to control and so on and so forth. Then they can visibly see the difference between what the 
humidity is in the room and what it is on a surface because, you know, I've never seen a perfect building. They all tend to leak. And, you know, if we look hard enough, we're going to find some sort of wet area in that building. If we look even harder, we're going to find mold. So uh, I thank you for your answer. And, and there's two experiments we did, uh, which were, you know, just practical ones that were interesting. I can give them to you real quick. Uh, so one was just comparing moisture meter readings in drying framing wood to the prototype water activity meter. And it did show uh, great differences, but uh, you know, for this specific wood type and, and condition, you could get a pretty good graph showing the relationship. What was interesting is uh, uh, we were getting water activities in the growth range when the moisture meter was saying you pass as far as a typical drying situation. The real, this is a big question in my mind about water activity, all this theoretical biological research and wood science research, but when does mold actually grow? So we had another great opportunity. Uh, There was, uh, so we worked for, Builders that build apartment buildings, wood-framed apartment buildings, they just got so soaked last summer uh, with the changing weather, which is actually why I did my climate change song to introduce the show. And uh, so we did work in dozens of large apartment buildings. Framing was full of mold. The framing was soaked. And... We found an interesting place to define the action level for this type of framing wood in this situation where mold was regrowing because we were we had these big crews bleaching mold and then also trying to dry out the wood. And so the treating bleaching guys would get way ahead of the, the drying guys. And so by getting lots of measurements, we found that with the moisture meter, uh, uh, over 20% moisture, that, that mold would grow back quickly after they remediated it off. And under 20%, it, it was not regrowing at all. So that, that was kind of interesting. Uh, and I'm sure the water activities would have theoretically predicted mold. So we really have to research and understand this better. But like I said, meanwhile, the industry is out there drying stuff and and you get restorers who actually know what they're doing and do their jobs right. You get it down dry and it won't go back. Well, let me ask you a question now. Based on seeing uh, what you said, uh, dozens of apartment buildings under construction with uh, you know, fungal growth on the wood, would you be, you know, after seeing this and seeing what was involved in the cost of the remediation and so on and so forth, would you be in, would you be in favor or against a treatment uh, you know, a treatment of the wood uh, in situ that would prevent that not not only for the construction time but for 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 many many years I mean there are products that are out there that are not costly it would be a lot less expensive than the labor of the cleanup and the embarrassment of disclosure you know to buyers and so on and so forth. Well, that's a very timely question because in a, a lot of these uh, sites we were working, the salesmen for the 
uh, focus focus treatments had been out there and made proposals to treat everything to get to treat the mold and to prevent mold. Right. And our client, the general contractor, uh, uh, favored the approach both economically and because we gave him the science. These treatments, uh, first of all, for the active mold, uh, you're just going to seal over moisture. That's completely stupid. And then for the prevention, uh, you don't need to make everything antimicrobial uh, as far as wood framing. you got to maintain and operate your building well. Uh, and if the, And really, for these antimicrobial, they are preventing growth to some extent, but things get wet long enough, grows anyway. And so our opinion is don't encapsulate, don't seal, don't treat wood. You remediate the surface, make sure it's dry. And we don't advocate encapsulating or treating wood. And boy, there's a lot of hard sales going on for those products. There's just a lot of money to be made in this industry. Well, Ed, I mean, Ed, is your issue um, is is your issue not allowing water vapor to pass through? I mean, because that shouldn't be an issue with a lot of the products. There are many products, you know, borates, etc., that you know would even provide termite. Uh, you know, prevention or salts. You know, there are a lot of things that wouldn't seal the wood. They're just on the wood, and they don't necessarily have a color. You can't tell that they're there. They don't have a smell. They don't have a high, uh, you know, toxicity addition, you know, to the materials. But, you know, there are some products out there. I just wondered, you know, what your issues were. Okay, well, I have issues. First, there's, first of all, with the... Uh, you have mold growing, and these products are advocated for remediation. Uh, they're not disinfectants. They don't kill the mold. Uh, and even if they would allow the wood to dry, you, you still got your mold there. And for the prevention, like something like borates, uh, you get it wet long enough, the mold will still grow. And you know, our, our approach is maintain your building, keep it as dry as you can, and you get a local problem, you bring in your good water restoration and take care of it. You know, I, I, I think one, one difference, you know, the difference is the re, it's prevention, not remediation. So the surfaces are treated before you have an issue rather than waiting for the issue to occur. And they could be treated with disinfectants. I mean, there are, you know, there are products you know, that, that are out there that have been proven, uh, you know, in construction in Florida and so on and so forth. It, it's just I was just trying to find out what your issues were, but right. we've got other and, stuff to talk about. Yeah, so just just real quick, the uh, the treatment for prevention isn't needed if the building's maintained, and our experience. Uh, most of the wood, most of the surfaces do stay dry for the life of the building. And when stuff happens, you take care of it. Uh, one thing we have found is that, you know, of course, any area that 
is likely to get wet or be subject to moisture, use resistant materials. The resistant drywall has works great in our, particularly when we, we just finished the Super Bowl stadium, Mercedes-Benz, and our client general contractor had all that drywall changed to resistant. It, there's so much to talk about. I'll shut up. Okay. And real quick, uh, I want to go to the roundup and bring in the uh, Restoration Industries Global Watchdog to say hello, Pete Consigli. But before we do, when you remove drywall because it's water damaged and moldy, what moisture content do you recommend the wood be back to, the framing be back to prior to putting new drywall up? So uh, uh, we've seen standard rules of thumb, uh, 19%, 15%, and our experience uh, is below 19% seems to be okay. So uh, 15% is better uh, as far as being conservative. And this is an area where more research could really benefit to be sure what we're doing and be cost effective. Again, the bottom line is we want to prevent mold from growing back. And I always, when we're doing uh, response to wet buildings, uh, uh, I always say getting rid of the mold is the easy part. The, the most important thing that people miss is we don't want to leave trapped moisture that's not going to dry out anywhere. So even if we get most of the wood dry, if something's going to get sealed or covered over in the construction that stays wet, you know, and that, that's where you got your failure, failures in your stink in a few years. Okay, John, let's go to the roundup. All right, let's bring in the watchdog, the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Pete, I know you've got to have a couple comments or questions yeah. or both. Yeah, it's been an interesting show. You know, it's funny listening, listening to Ed and Paul, these guys talk about the problems with the schools in the summer. You know, it reminds me of McGinnis. I, I, for years, I've been listening to McGinnis talk about, you know, the, in Jersey, you know, he, all the schools, they do all the carpet cleaning in the summer months, and they, they never, they always forget to reset the, um, to override the, you know, the HVAC systems, which they, you know, they have an, an energy-saving mode. And so this, the ones are being so much moist in their buildings when the carpet doesn't dry, he, they they all turn to mold, and it's unbelievable. I think it's like a lifetime opportunity for McGinnis because I don't know how many times in some of these schools he goes in there and they have to use like asbestos protocols to pull the, this moldy carpet out without contaminating the entire building. And uh, I don't know. I would suspect that that's probably, um, uh, you know, a bigger problem uh, with the schools and doing stuff in the summertime and cleaning processes like that where – they're just not removing any of the excess humidity and the moisture that they're putting into these buildings. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that, Ed? Oh, uh, so we work with schools on that. And that is an instance where, as Joe brought up, could you use dehumidifiers? And so there's no need to have mold after carpet cleaning. And it's good to clean the carpets because that's where most of your symptoms 
from allergic people come. It's not from mold spores. It's from the stuff in carpets. Yeah. So yeah, you, right. It, it's so definitely. you just have, we got our, where we're actually involved and somebody listens to us, we have floor fans or dehumidifiers or temporary operation of that zone of the HVAC when they're doing the carpet you know, extraction and you don't get mold at all. And uh, running a whole HVAC or a, a whole zone for a few days will dry it out, but that's a huge waste of energy. Just take care of those individual spaces. And oftentimes just your uh, your your floor fans or, or some kind of. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think keep, that. I, the big thing is keep those doors open, man. They, they do a carpet and the air's off and the door's closed and uh, you don't need to, I mean, you just predict molds there after about three or four days and sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think what the issue is, is that a lot of times in these schools, it just falls through the cracks. They don't think about it. They could bring supplemental equipment in, but uh, I mean, the thing is if they, depending on how big of an area they were doing, if they actually uh, uh, were able to control just the zone, the normal air conditioning probably could dry it. Maybe it'd be energy efficient. Maybe it wouldn't, but the thing is, it just seems that these are problems which they should be able to avoid, at least in New Jersey. Uh, but like I say, uh, some of these guys, uh, you know, it's kind of like their, it's like their summer income. It's like a, a, a separate job for them from normal work. Um, hey, listen, uh, you know, this uh, talking about the water activity, and Cliff brought that up. And I remember, Ed, you had, were doing some work with one of the home builders in D.C., playing around with those sensors that Decker got made and trying to test for the water activity. Um, and I had been involved with some industry groups, too, who actually didn't want to release the information, unfortunately. And I tried for a long time, and I don't think they have. But uh, I don't know if it's a secret. I mean, Lou Herrmann was involved in, 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 in trying to, you know, guide that company to make a sensor that could, uh, in some cost-effective way, and, and not take too long to determine water activity because it would be a more accurate way to determine whether these surfaces are dried versus, you know, the different uh, meters that are used. I think it would be a supplement, too. I remember the young salesman. He doesn't work for Decanon anymore, but – he kind of thought if they came out with this, this was going to supplant and like put Dumb Horse and Tramex out of business. And we said, no, no, hold on there. It, it, it's just another tool. And it, you know, it could be a, a, an interesting and a, and a useful tool, but then nothing ever came of it, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, uh, I know that they, they, they were at one of the IEQA shows and uh, Ian Cole got onto that thing there, Mr. Hughes. And, uh, um, they were try- he was trying to do some stuff with it, but I don't think anything kind of came of it. And I- I'm kind of sad to-, to hear that because the argument that happened when they were develop- working with those sensors was to try to figure out who's going to control the platform where the information got uploaded to and, uh, you know, how they utilize the information and what the protocols would be. Um, you know, in my mind, I-, I still think there's an opportunity for something like that to- that could be useful in the industry. Um, particularly when it's litigation or if somebody, you know, there's some, some special circumstances where they want that level of, uh, you know, certainty, if you would, that these building materials are dry. I don't think that it's going to be, uh, you know, become mainstream. I don't know. Maybe I could be wrong. Uh, you know, if, uh, if brother Phil Maury had his way, he would definitely love to see something like that. 
you know, and that would be a very quotable item in a, in an expert witness report or something. But the, what, what are your thoughts that anything you can share in the work that you did, what happened, where it might go, what you think? Oh, I, I had thought that out several years ago when I was uh, playing with that meter. And my idea was uh, that moisture meter and infrared are the working tools for identifying and tracking and clearing. And your water activity measurements uh, would be a supplement to that. And one of the great limitations is that you do a spot and the spot moisture meters, you can zip along and do millions of spots. Like I was doing just before I got here in a project infrared. If you use it intelligently and know the limitations, uh, will pay a, a whole lot. And uh, what I've learned from the water activity measurements is there can be a relationship between moisture meter readings and that, but it's very specific for the material and actually for that building environment you're working in. Uh, and then the other question I've raised from this other work we did on, on trying to dry out moldy apartment buildings where the mold keeps growing back uh, is, uh, so what does water activity numbers mean? Theoretically, uh, you know, when you get these numbers of water activity, the mold could grow down to five, and a lot of mold will grow at above eight. And uh, I believe if we – and nobody's studied that in a controlled proper experiment, a simple experiment. And – I, I believe that mold doesn't grow. Oh, I, I need to cut my answer short. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, the, the point was is that it just, it kind of, there was, there was a lot of messing around with it. I think there were good intentions and then it stopped and it never was brought to market. And I'm not so sure that uh, I, I think there could be a use for it in the market. I guess that was the main point. Um, you know, I, uh, during that time, a few years back when that was happening, I was pretty regularly, at least a couple times a year, going out to Purdue to do some uh, guest lectures, you know, with their students in the disaster reconstruction in the demo programs. And what I found out there by accident was, is that they're actually in the agricultural uh, department of Purdue. Deca, Decagon actually has been working with them for years <coughs> and has utilizes that technology uh, in that industry where they want to, you know, check the water activity and grain silos and all those kind of things, uh, you know, which is where I think they originated from to make sure that they don't have mold growth in there because that can have big health implications in the farming industry. And, uh, but there, the time is that it, it, it isn't an issue like restoration. I mean, it could take an hour to take a reading in a specific area and that's fine. They, they, they what we want, they, what we told them, they said, we can't wait that long. They said, I, you know, what, what's the most you can wait? They said, well, after five minutes, you'll lose us. I mean, we, we, you know, we get instant readings, and most of the stuff, you know, a minute or two is about all we could do. And they were trying to narrow it down where in minutes. And um, I don't know, maybe one day it'll happen. But anyway, um, I thought it was interesting, and I, I was happy to see you really trying to play around with it in the home, in the con new construction market, because I think uh, a lot of these companies do construction drying and things out of nature. I think it would have really good value there. And uh, could you know protect against the potential litigation and all that. So anyway, for whatever it's worth, interesting. We'll see whatever comes of it. 
So. All right. Hey, Cliff, I know you got a quick comment, but uh, I know Ed also has to run. So if you could get your two comments in, then we'll let Ed go. Yeah, no, I, I, I do. Uh, Pete, first of all, I think some technologies are fundamentally flawed. They're unaffordable. They're not practical. And I think sometimes people just need to let it go and then and, and move on. Ed, my, my only comment for you, thanks for joining us, but if you'd be kind enough to send me the lyrics from the song, I'd like to put it into the blog because it's kind of hard to hear everything and so on and so forth. The kazoo was a little overwhelming. <laughs> oh, it, usually the sound man complains about my whistle. It blows it up. Okay. And I, and by the way, I just finished writing that in the way here and had never practiced it, but. Okay. It was good, but if you can <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Ed, before we go, anything you'd like to add? I know you've got to run. Uh, no, this was a, a great show, and uh, my day has gone real well. We're in the process of uh, doing a, a working with a builder on uh, low-income apartment building renovations, and we're going building by building to find and take care of the water damage and sources of moisture. And I got my building done this morning. We've got this down to a great system with the contractors. And what's really interesting in this is that the architects, when they design renovations of these really poorly maintained, wet, damaged, uh, low-income and public housing buildings, don't they? think about the water damage and the moisture sources and our client the GC gets to the job and uh, run into mold and they're not sure what to do I come in there and I said look we uh, let's sell the owner on uh, um, the idea of adding this to the work so when they reoccupy a renovated building they're actually be free of mold and water. And so we've gotten huge change orders and owner's decisions favorable to go ahead with mold, water damage, moisture project out of these. So uh, I got my vest on, we're, we're in there. Uh, we got a whole apartment building done this morning. Uh, and uh, now they're putting it back together and nice renovation. Ed, my guess would be you didn't take one sample. Okay, my uh, uh, mold sampling stuff is rusting in my basement, and I haven't taken a mold sample in 20 years. You know, Ed, I think it's an important point. I also think that uh, I'm going to continue to encourage those out there in this industry, especially doing IEQ consulting, to learn more about building science because I think you – you, you, you rep, you're a perfect example of someone that could do a lot of sampling if you wanted to. Um, you're a certified industrial hygienist, uh, but I think you show us, and, and I continue to promote to listeners and those that are attending classes that really it's learning the building science is more important than learning how to take samples. And um, you're going to be able to have a longer career helping people like you are now, Ed. You go through a building, you figure out what are the building science issues, where are the moisture issues, let's fix that. If you want some documentation, we can provide it. But I just think you're a great example of uh, what we've been trying to promote here for years. 
Thank you. Oh, he mentioned the late Phil Mori. He was he was my mentor. He was 40 years ago. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And he took me out in the field and really got me started. And then we totally parted ways uh, over the idea of mold sampling versus really understanding the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and may he rest in peace. He's a great guy. Yeah. Well, you know, Mr. Somebody I remember the uh, I remember the meeting that we had in Charlotte, nineteen ninety eight, with uh, you and uh, Ronald Gotts and Phil Mori and Ecker Johanny was supposed to be there, but he had to go to Germany for his annual summer visit. So it was like a cage match. Phil had to take both of you guys on at one time, but of course he he couldn't challenge Gotts because he wasn't an MD. But I remember that was an interesting discussion in the late nineties because that was right on the the cusp before the Molders Gold days, and there was a big split within the industrial hygiene community. And you were right in there with your, both of your rubber boots on. And I remember our friend Davich, you know, uh, he was the guy, I think, Cliff, that actually uh, introduced Ed kind of to the restoration guys, if you recall. And uh, I thought those were really interesting. And I thought it was also very interesting, too, that uh, you helped support and put a lot of time and energy into the uh, second S-500 water damage document. And then... I, I very specifically call. You were going to have your name attached to it, and you wanted to know whether they would put a dissenting viewpoint in. And uh, essentially, uh, Cliff and myself advocated for that, and they rejected that motion. And then you didn't want to have your name listed because you felt that without being able to put down that dissenting viewpoint, it could affect uh, certain positions that you took in legal and litigation cases. I always remembered that, and I think a lot of people in the industry didn't get the whole point that uh, consensus doesn't mean that everybody agrees or even the majority agrees. It means that, you know, you, you go through a process, everybody's heard. And I always felt that if the Supreme Court can uh, put that dissenting viewpoint down, you know, why couldn't standards organization? I don't know. We're making some changes. Maybe, that, maybe they'll see the light one day. Uh, no, no pun intended, Ed. <laughs> so just in closing, there's been a lot of stupid politics old issue. And I've been very politically incorrect, but I'm science-based and public health-based and practical. Hey, and how come, how come you haven't come to Steenbrick summer camp over the years? You know, I think you'd enjoy the heck out of that. Hey, you know, Henry Gifford, New Yorker, he wrote a book uh, that came out last year called Buildings Don't Lie. And it's just a, it's a hands-on uh, practical application by applying building science to evaluate, you know, and fix buildings. And, um, a fabulous book. I uh, sent an email on it last year after summer camp, and I, I think I probably sold about 40 books for them. About four or five people in Australia ordered it right away. I didn't want a commission. I just thought it was a good book. And um, if you hadn't done it, you ought to check it out. I think you probably would enjoy it. But you ought to come no. to summer camp. So uh, my answer is they haven't invited me, and I'm not going to spend a 1000 bucks. Well, no, hang on now. You can always get the invite. You can always get you can always get the invite, uh, but the, that, not spending a thousand bucks is probably the bigger deal. But uh, yeah, you could have gotten the invite. Oh, hey, okay. <laughs> I'm going to wrap this up now. Ed Light, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate you, uh, uh, your unique perspective on things, Ed. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, the Building Dynamics Duo, Paul Haas and Ed Light, joined us this week. We talked about moisture and mold. And some practical answers to complex questions. We'll be back. Uh, I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. The Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. 
most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.